of a commerce podcast. Welcome back to the Agents 11, that's the Ocean's 11 edition of the Agents e-commerce podcast. Today, I'd like to welcome Mr. Craig Smith, that's Mr. Craig Edward Smith at gmail.com, the former head of digital e-commerce at Ted Baker. He spent almost 24 years there, and in fact, he was the 14th employee of that amazing brand, and he has lots of stories to tell about the growth of the brand, e-commerce, and storytelling in the context of Ted. So thanks again for joining. And I know it's been a bit of a hiatus, but I'm back and there'll be lots of podcasts in the coming time. So take care, enjoy, and let me know what you think. All right. Welcome everyone back to my 11th podcast of the Agents of E-Commerce. I think it's 11th. Could have been 10th. It's okay. Welcome back to the podcast regardless. I'm here with Craig Smith. Uh, Craig is an excellent gentleman who I contacted really on a sales outreach outreach some years ago. Uh, But additionally, I I pitched his former company, Ted Baker, back when I was at Monetate. And I got to say, I was so impressed both as as a customer with the brand, with their story, with the experience, uh, and especially their elevator. Uh, I, I know I'm kind of you know, goofy in that regard. They've got this awesome elevator, if you check it out on YouTube, that has these amazing sound snip buttons that you can just sit in there and and press the buttons in the elevator. I guess I'm sort of giving away my, my level of maturity here. But, uh, but Craig and I reconnected recently, and uh, he has been gracious enough to agree to do this podcast. Craig, why don't you say hi and introduce yourself? Yes, good afternoon and hello to everyone. And um, nice to touch base again with you, Eric, and uh, appreciate the recent conversations. Yeah, I have just recently finished uh, 24 years at Ted Baker, uh, man and boy, and it was quite a journey, I think it's fair to say. Um, and I look forward to you know, revealing some of those things and telling you a bit more about um, what I've done there and what I've done since. So thank you, Eric, for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, so t- well, Craig, tell us a little bit about you know, your training and background and essentially how you got into sort of this, this digital and e-commerce world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it, I think it's fair to say I've always been interested in you know the creative arts and and what that meant. And I'm you know I'm fifty soon, so that was uh, started quite a number of years ago. And I've always been interested in um, you know the power of a great idea and how well uh, you know a fantastic idea once visualised properly can tell a great story. And and we all know how much people love stories and how um, much people engage with great stories that you know, they can relate to. Uh, so during my uh, early career, it was all about really defining where, you know, a great idea can take you to. Uh, I wasn't really, you know, focused on what that meant uh, to a brand in the early days, but I was excited to be able to do something and get paid for it and enjoy getting into work on a Monday morning and um, you know, doing that every day. And through, you know, the early years at Ted Baker, it was very much about, you know, refining one's craft and seeing just what we could do with Ted Baker, the brand hero, and putting all that together um, to delight and engage and continue to educate our our fans and our growing sort of fan base uh, in the UK and internationally uh, around what Ted was up to and what that meant for the brand um, and his products. Before Ted, though, you what was your training specifically? You trained in as a creative, correct? Graphic designer and image maker. 
image maker. Ah, see, I can't even doodle. So I always have a lot of uh, respect for folks that, that can actually make something visually impactful. To be fair, my mum still thinks I just work with words and pictures. So nothing's <laughs> changed. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, my mom used to think I worked uh, for a company called Monistat when I was at Monitate, and that, that's an entirely different company, but I don't want to go through any of my mom yeah. issues right now. But uh, so awesome. So yeah, maybe maybe your story about how you got into TED. It's a really interesting one. We talked about it earlier, but I'd love for you to sort of, to, you know, how you ended up uh, at TED Baker. Absolutely. Um, complete fluke, to be fair. I'd been um, in London. I'd been staying at a friend's house, sleeping on his floor and really just trying to get my portfolio uh, and myself in front of as many people as I could. And I was fortunate enough to secure a, a number of you know, short-term agency positions, just really work experience and getting my foot in the door to try and understand what happens in these places uh, whilst also trying to secure some form of paid work so I could uh, eat and drink and um, pay some of the bills. And uh, at one of these uh, agencies, there was a call which came in to uh, a friend I'd made there who had another friend who worked at this brand called Ted Baker. wasn't on my radar. I didn't really know what it was. And they were looking for a, a studio assistant. And was anyone interested in um, going to talk to them about this role? So effectively, I was due to go home on the Monday after that Friday. So I thought to myself, well, what's the worst that can happen? So I put my hand up. And an hour later, I'm knocking on this big metal blue door at the office, which they called the Fortress, just near Euston Station. Uh, it was absolutely bucketing down with rain. So I wasn't in the best of moods. But um, from the other side of the door, there was a big gruff voice, uh, effectively, what do you want? Who is it? Who are you here for? Um, and then the door opened and I was led into this really interesting sort of industrial warehouse space um, with a big glass panelled office on one side. And ushered into there, sat there for 10 minutes, got brought a cup of tea and a biscuit. Um, and then a really nice chap came in and we started talking about what I was doing and what I wanted to do and you know what I felt I could offer. And this other chap came back in. And, you know, we started talking about all manner of things other than the uh, portfolio and the work I was doing. Then he just (laughs) went off and I carried on going through my portfolio, trying to impress this chap who was clearly going to be my boss. And um, we got on pretty well. The other guy came back, sat down with his cup of tea and a biscuit, and we started talking again and ended up talking for about half an hour about football and all manner of other things. Um, And it actually turned out we were wearing the same uh, red wing boots and we ended up talking about that for about 15 minutes. And ultimately, he then started talking to the other chap about me whilst I was there, which was lovely. Um, And ultimately, they agreed that I had something to offer. And if I paid my own train fare, I could start on the Monday morning and we'd see how it went. And I literally did start on the Monday morning and I was there for 24 years. So it was a a fantastic introduction to my meeting with Ray Kelvin, the founder and then CEO of Ted Baker. So brilliant um, introduction to what he was all about. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's interesting guy, very interesting story. The fact that, you know, he didn't want the company to be called Ray Kelvin. He wanted to sort of hide behind it Absolutely. and created this fictitious Ted Baker, who, who I would say is probably the first uh, most interesting man in the world. I mean, that's sort of the only concept I can compare him to in, in the vision of who he was, at least, you know, to me. But, but you know, as someone that, that likes fashion a bit, can't seem to carry off much, I was, you know, always loved the the style and this concept of, 
of being someone cool enough to wear Ted Baker clothes, which, you know, I wasn't as, as much as I'd hoped to be. But it's really amazing how he, he, you know, Ray wanted to be secondary and really use the freedom of, of this character to create this brand. Yeah, it was it was genius. It was a masterstroke even back then. You know, the fact he was thinking about, you know, from his own perspective, the fact that one day, in his own words, he was going to be a grey-haired, fat old Jew, and no one wants to see that, right? So <laughs> creating this, um, you know, evergreen, really interesting character, you know, alter ego, whatever you want to call it, who he could hide behind, but who could also then be this incredible, flexible vehicle for the brand. It was an absolute masterstroke. Mm-hmm. And so what were some of the, the, the roles that you played in developing that, you know, from on the brand side, you were there early on developing that brand, but then ultimately had to translate that to digital as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the first, um, let's say four, six, four to six years was really about developing the, you know, the tone of voice. We were quite a male oriented brand back then. The product was nothing like it is now, but we always had the um, opportunity to be very, very open and playful and uh, imaginative around the, the tone of voice and the visual language. And we really did take that um, to the nth degree. And within that, you know, I was I was allowed to play around with, you know, how we spoke about Ted, how he spoke to customers, how we visualized product, how we brought some of the, you know, campaigns and stories to life in store. And this was before the internet was a thing for us as a fashion brand. Um, and we were really refining, you know, how we talked through him and with him and how we used him to portray the brand and how he then supported us selling a product. And he appeared uh, everywhere from, you know, a one line, a Tedism, which appeared in inside product on labels to, you know, longer stories that we put out um, in the press or, you know, used to support the business development. So it was a really, really exciting time for us. And as you can imagine, we did everything from the viewpoint of brand first. It was always, always, we have to do it in the way that Ted would respect. And we actually used the line, would Ted do it that way, as our (laughs) sort of benchmark for the things that we were developing. And if you genuinely felt that he wouldn't do it that way, then we wouldn't do it. And it was really important that everyone bought into that. It's a bit cult-like, but actually it really, really works because you have people fully immersed in the emotion of what they're doing and they're always looking to satisfy, you know, the purity of that brand position and the DNA that comes with that. And it makes people think really, really long and hard about everything they're doing. You mentioned the word, you know, cult-like. I would think the best brands create a cult. I mean, look at Apple, look at Coke, yeah. look at Disney. I mean, these look at Marvel, look at Star Wars. I mean, these are all cults. I mean, I have to admit, we're all sort of devoting ourselves to this. Uh, another piece about Ted Baker that I always liked was this concept of sort of whimsy and sense of humor that that they took the fashion very seriously, but there was always a place for for humor within yeah. that world, which I think yeah. is, is important because some fashion can take itself way too seriously. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, we always um, sat back and thought we just don't want to come across as another one of these po face fashion brands because you know what, it's not that enjoyable, and you know what, we're not sa- we're not saving lives or um, you know really doing anything of any great virtue. But we enjoyed what we do, and we wanted to put a smile on customers' faces and continue to give them something which may transport them from the everyday. And whether we did that with a funny line or a great window campaign and display or or an activity when we opened a store, whatever it may be, it always felt like it came from the hand of Ted. And, you know, that was really important to us, that we had that distinction. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I do think, you know, we talked about this before as well, earlier conversations, but this concept of the story brand, uh, Douglas Miller had written about this and and I've introduced you to this concept. But one of the aspects of it that I think really aligns here is sort of, is Ted is sort of your, the customer is sort of the hero, but but Ted is kind of the Sherpa. He's sort of the style guide helping you along your path to sort of self-actualization in fashion. And I think that's that's interesting and in, in how I see that that concept being applied here. Yeah, we always talked about we were the we were the custodians of the brand. We were the people that Ted entrusted to tell the brand story. And through our, let's say, our entrusted network of both internal and external partners, the customer would end up being the beneficiary of all of that love, care and attention and craft. Mm-hmm. Um, and we knew that they really enjoyed that and they really, really appreciated the effort that went into um, providing some of those uh, things within the Ted Baker universe. Mm-hmm. So, so as we think about you know the storytelling that you were doing, and, and over your time there, you you migrated into the digital side of the house, <clears throat> on, on the e-commerce side of the house, yeah. and now you have a new set of tools to try to leverage uh, and ca- and capitalize and. Uh, you know everything from personalization to uh, more rich, engaging experiences. How did how did that transpire evolve for you in, in your role at TED as well as the brand itself? Yeah, I think it's I think it's fair to say if you go back to 1999, which is when we built our first website, um, it was rudimentary at best. But what it was very very clearly, to your point, is another way in which we can put out a version or a you know another addition or an extension to something we were very very proud about into and let's call it the ether in effect and what what we were really excited about is that people who potentially had never heard of us before would suddenly have another way in which they could investigate and buy into a little bit about what we were doing as a brand the first website well, actually the first two or three websites were iterations of you know, brand carrying vehicles where we just talked about who we were and what we did. There was no product photography on there. There was no, you know, indication that we were selling anything, but we were still at that early stage starting to tell stories from a brand perspective through Ted Baker himself, where he'd been, where he'd come from, what he liked doing, why he really, really enjoyed, you know, the difference between a single-breasted suit and a double-breasted suit. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But it was it was all about the written word, and it gave us a really good opportunity to hone uh, how we talked about the brand online. And this obviously moved very very quickly to the point where we were having those classic conversations around the board table about, you know, are people seriously going to be able to purchase our beautiful product that we know they like to touch and feel online? We said, well, ultimately, we've got to get into a position where we can test that and try that. So we invested relatively quickly in getting um, an e-commerce proposition into market. And I was fortunate to be able to um, you know, manage that project. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed what that taught us. But we never strayed from doing it from the brand perspective. So it didn't matter what the project was. The intent was always the same. Does it, does it underpin the brand? Does it befit the brand DNA? Do we think it says the right things in the right way about Ted Baker. If it doesn't, we won't do it. But it really, really started to give us great flexibility. And what we liked is the fact that you could change it um, whenever you liked. 
and that was one of the most unusual things um, at our disposal. But it was a great exercise for the teams to, you know, push the creativity. When you make that transition from commerce to a branded site, you really have to be very mindful of of your audience and the fans and how they are going to engage and the perception as that moves forward. Uh, and for a brand as strong as yours, I'm sure that created a few internal challenges as well. It, it really did. Um, but they were good challenges, like all of the other things that we were doing, because we didn't advertise either we knew that anything we put out into market and put in front of a customer had to be spot on um and that was a great challenge in itself great challenge for me great challenge for the teams and a great challenge for the brand as we move forward because you know things started to accelerate very very quickly and i'm talking about probably 2006 2007 now where it actually looked like it might be something that made money and that changed the the approach to it to a degree, but not from the perspective of we are a brand first and foremost. We're selling in a brand and a lifestyle. The product is an important part of that, but we never wanted it to overtake the fact that we were a brand and we had our own personality and our distinct tone of voice and our distinct visual language. Um, and you've got to make it work. And we went through a number of iterations you know, from the design perspective of the site because we didn't want it to look like a website. I know that sounds a bit odd, <laughs> but we wanted to build it. So it felt like you were almost um, reading a bit of a sort of storybook. Um, and that, that in itself technically was a great challenge, um, but one that we enjoyed working with and working through. When you think about some of the learnings you had in this early stages of e-commerce in the e-commerce world, what were some of the things that you, you really surprised you or uh, what were some of the maybe the, some of the successes you had and, and even some of the failures? Um, yeah, I think I think the, the initial successes were, were very much about the fact we were at a time where anything went really and people were starting to experiment uh, like we were in this space with this, you know, with this interweb, as people used to call it, which is funny now, but was a thing, right? Um, and as a brand who could play around, we had a bit more elasticity than some. And because we were a brand which obviously had this mythical uh, brand hero, we could also get away with a few more things. We could also be a bit um, a more creative with what we did online. And I think it's also worth remembering that social media wasn't such an important part of the mix back then as well. So you could do a number of things um, in isolation on the website that you might not see elsewhere and just see what the reaction was very quickly, both internally and externally. And I think one of the early learnings, and this is, you know, was quite painful at the time, is you've, you've got to actually listen to your audience. Um, and if, if it sounds as though they don't like it, do you know what? You've got to change it and you've got to do it quickly and you've got to be decisive and you've got to um, put a lot of your sort of personal views to one side. And, and that meant now more than anything is is a sort of thing you would underpin with um, data and insight, you know, but it was, let's just, let's just listen to what people are saying and let's make sure we react to it, you know, and, but it was okay back then because the impact of doing things which were slightly awry or not quite right wasn't the same as it is now. Yeah, I think you know what it sounds like. You had a culture of of testing, maybe a culture of, of risk taking, uh, but always 
listening to the customer to make sure you're you're doing the right thing and and that's important because I've I've seen other brands that that may not depend on the data they depend on the hippo the uh, highest yeah. person in the room to dictate yeah, we, things yeah we had a bit of that as well and that was uh, <laughs> as you can imagine but that was also okay because we we all learned together mm-hmm. definitely. So so let's fast forward a bit to sort of uh you know the 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 last project I know you you were very proud of of what you were able to execute there maybe you could tell us a little about that and when you know this concept of the customer and the data all sort of came together in, in your last execution yeah so we we we'd all agreed that um we were going to move the business into a, a sort of agile headless uh, e-commerce uh, in in that into that space and we'd set up the infrastructure and the teams uh, in order to do that and then the missing piece was around having our customer data platform so a proper CRM solution in place uh, so we were fortunate enough to be supported by the board um, and we developed a customer strategy and the first part of that was bringing on a brand new CRM implementation to give us that single customer view. Um, so once we got through the um, stages, uh, selection, et cetera, et cetera, what we started to do uh, with the database detail that we had, we worked with a very, very smart agency called Seoul London, is we started to get into, um, let's call it the, the mindsets uh, piece around the types of customers you have Um it's, it's like an extension to the segmentation where not only do you work out what uh, age groups you've got, what gender, what sort of things they buy, but you start to get into, well, what are the actual emotional triggers and the mindsets? And there are 12 or 13, which are very, very distinctly mapped out within everyone. And what are the nuances that you can then think about and overlay on your customer base where you can start to be very, very intelligent about the use of copy the use of color the use of product imagery that you would put into any one set of communications and we ended up with three very distinct mindsets they were gurus boosters and peacocks and once we then overlaid that and and fed that into our initial setup of our crm solution in one fell swoop it just made everything seem more intelligent and we could see very, very quickly that the customers were also very, very cognizant of the difference between what we were doing before and then what we'd started to do um, in this new world. And it was a fantastic um, exercise for the business to go through um, because we involved as many people as we could from from the main man down um, because we wanted them to understand we've got this beautiful brand. There's a very distinct DNA but what actually do we know about customers as opposed to, I mean, to your earlier point, what do we think about customers? What do we think those customers want? And being able to break that down through the business, through the layers, gave us a very powerful start point, making some significant decisions around brand and product. And also where we started to look um, at additional international opportunities. So it was a very, very exciting time. And uh, I'm really pleased that um, we were able to land that. Uh, it sounds amazing. Very customer centric, and it seems like the customers responded to it. I think one aspect that you, that you mentioned that seems interesting is this concept of going sort of from twelve, uh, I guess, viewpoints on the types of segments or personas down to three. Right. That's a that's a, an effort, an exercise. 
that I think may free you up in some regard when it comes to the bottlenecks that I always see people run into when it comes to executing a, a customer-centric, maybe personalized experience where you have so many permutations that you have to manage and create that you tend to not execute as well because it requires so much content. But when you boil it down to just yeah. three, you can really invest in understanding those people or those groups very specifically. And, and, and that's where you came to, it sounds like. Correct. And that is and that is very true. The, the, the challenge is then immediately, well, who's managing what and how do you actually develop sufficiently you know, tailored content on, the, on a theme or on a campaign um, that you can populate the channels accordingly? And, and, and this, just to be clear, it's not just about email. It's about all customer touch points. So the campaigns you would develop with those three mindsets in mind then had to be broken down into, well, how does that work on Facebook? How does that work on YouTube? How does that work on Snap? How does that work on Instagram? And you have to map out the entire customer journey for those three mindsets from start to finish. The beauty of a proper CRM solution and a single customer view platform is you start to feed back all of that detail and data from all of those elements and touch points along the customer journey against an individual. So they're not data points, they're people. And if you wanted to, you could go in and you could tailor a communication to an individual person because you knew very clearly what they enjoyed doing, how long they spent doing this, what they were looking at, what they discarded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera through to and including post-purchase and re-engagement. It's fantastically exciting. Hmm. That does sound pretty exciting uh, and, and really seems like you know, you're able to give the, the brand a way to distill their, their thoughts in a very clear way. Um, one, one question I have, so when you think about the gurus, the boosters, and the peacocks, from an organization standpoint, did you have one team, uh, maybe – teams for each of those so someone was focusing on the gurus on the peak boosters and the peacocks no. or did you sort of have a more horizontal or more you know what i mean versus vertically looking at these yeah i i wanted all of the different um let's call it the facets of the department to be considering the three mindsets from that day forward um i didn't want to break it into the buckets um, because actually that doesn't make sense from a um, process or workflow perspective Mm-hmm. And actually, you want the entire set of teams to understand the connectivity and the crossover and also the distinctions between them because that's what they need to factor into the work they're doing. Um, and I just think it was that important a step change for us that everyone got their head around what it was before and what it was then and going forward. Excellent. All right, that makes sense. I just I've seen different types of organizations attempt yeah. different things in, in in this prospect, and I, no, I like your perspective. Sure. Yeah. So so before we leave before we leave Ted and, and some of the work you've done since, uh, I do want to sort of discuss one aspect of, of your, what you saw there. And yeah. uh, you know, Ted was an interesting brand, and Ray was a, a really interesting character, yeah, uh, no. as you've described. Uh, but some of the things that happened towards the end of your tenure around the Me Too movement, uh, you know, as I understand it, there was this uh, hug box in in the office and on some level you know i'm a hugger it seems like a really nice idea but as as times changed and the concept of the power positions that existed there uh, you know you got to see you know on the front line a really interesting transition of what yeah. happened and a cultural mo- moment absolutely can, can i just um, be very clear um around we we definitely did not 
see the connection with with the meeting movement and that's not something we've ever accepted it was an mm. unfortunate timing for for when the allegations um came out around you know ray and the business um and and i can understand why people have you know connected them together but we never um we never did but you're absolutely right you know we had a period um, within the business where there was a a, a very very distinct challenge put forward and a number of allegations which were tabled which obviously you know if one person's upset about something then we we have to listen it is a very is a very serious um, situation and and we did that very very quickly and very very distinctly um but the business was a very special business the culture was very unique ray is a very very unique individual he was a genuinely warm people person and often you know worked with him for over 20 years i can genuinely say that He's not the person that he was um, portrayed to be, and it's and it's a very very sad indictment that um, you know the noise that was garnered so quickly around these challenges, you know, made him think twice very quickly about this business that he created, and, and you know the UBB or the Ugly Brown Building. It was his second home. It was the place he felt most comfortable. And people loved Ray. They loved his warmth. He's, he's such a charismatic character. And you're absolutely right. There was a hug spot by his desk. But people were never forced into hugging. I can say that categorically. Um, and it was a very sad day when um, it all came to pass. And Ray took the very, very um, big decision. And, um, you know, he is that type of man who would put the business and people first. And he resigned. Um, and it changed the business overnight. Wow, that's pretty pretty interesting, uh, timely movement. So, uh, so thanks thanks for going there. I know it's, it's going to be sometimes painful. So, uh, so before you know, so you left Ted, and if you could take a little bit, talk about you know, you took what you learned uh, in that last project, a pretty large undertaking, and you you applied it at Radley. Tell us a little bit more about how that worked out for you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was fortunate to um, be approached uh, around a role that uh, Radley were looking at and it was a new role for the business so chief customer officer and I think it's fair to say when we were talking about it October November last year there was absolutely no one <laughs> was uh, able to say what was coming around the corner and we mm-hmm. all know, you know what, what's happened uh, since uh, began uh, there just for Christmas and the opportunity was almost the last piece of the jigsaw. The business that had somewhat of a renaissance, it was um, gaining momentum. They had a good trajectory, but they hadn't been able to sufficiently develop uh, the brand positioning piece. You know, they wanted to elevate it. They wanted to look at connected customer. They wanted to accelerate e-commerce. They got a new website platform launching. And there's a lot of stuff within that um, which wasn't being managed day to day and needed bringing together. So took the opportunity, um, firstly, because I want to be busy. Secondly, because it was a really good opportunity to see how I would fit into a new culture after so long at Ted Baker. And also as a private equity um, owned business. So again, a new dynamic for me to get my head around. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. It was a fantastic um, place to work. The people were brilliant, really, really passionate about the brand, real advocates for what you know Radley stands for, not in a dissimilar way to Ted Baker. Um, but suffice it to say, it's had some highs and lows over the time. It's crashed and burned a couple of times. It's being rebuilt. Um, and unfortunately, 
um, you know, COVID came and knocked it sideways. Um, it's got a great team in place. There's a really good view of what's happening over the next few years. And you know what? I think it'll be fine. Uh, I think, you know, Justin, the CEO there and the team, they've got a really good handle on what they need to do, what they need to focus on. Uh, and, I, and I wish them all the best and um, sit in touch with the guys and uh, we'll help out accordingly. Excellent. Yeah, I definitely think that, that you know, the the information, the experience that you've had with Ted is going to be really applicable to, to lots of brands because folks nowadays are really struggling or trying to find the right balance of focus on the customer, what you can do with technology, how do you solve the bottlenecks and how do you scale to make these platforms really do the things that people are looking for because customers' expectations are so high. And yeah. when you think about the the more sophisticated brands, you expect uh, a level of sophistication uh, from a technology, from an engagement standpoint that don't always go one-to-one. So it's it's interesting that, that, that we feel so strongly about what we, what we demand of the companies that we associate ourselves with. No, I think, you know, we all, we all want to believe in brands. We all enjoy you know, discovering a new brand that um, maybe fills a little bit of a hole that you had or, you know, gives you a really different perspective on something that you may be taking for granted or shines a new light on something that you thought otherwise of. Um, and I think that's what everybody needs to take stock of now is, is what is it that they offer that customers really do care about or might care about? And if they can actually pinpoint that, do you know what? Make the most of it go to the nth degree, go to as much detail level as you can to build something that firstly you care about um, in order to make sure that they care about it. And if you do that, then you've got a fighting chance. If you've got nothing to say, you don't stand for anything and you can't put yourself out there in a way which has any form of authority or any distinction at all, do you know what? It's going to be very difficult. Totally agree. Yeah, you've got to say something and stand for something. I think that's 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 critical nowadays, especially because there's just been such a a wave of that of of companies having to step up and and say what they stand for, uh, and that that is that is critical. It sometimes it seems a little bit uh, facetious, uh, maybe not as honest. But if you've built a brand that that is honest and communicated communicable, then then you have this ability to to, to take that and, and do something good. So cool. we'll see more how that see how that evolves in the coming days. Well, look. I think ultimately, if you if you are an authentic business and you are a genuine group of people and you all agree that it's something you feel strongly about, then as long as you are intelligent about how you communicate it, how you stand behind it, then you know what? That's okay. But you've got to be committed to it. You, you know, look at Starbucks this morning with the press release and that challenge they've now got where they've you know got an internal message which is different to their external message. Well, that's, that's a big problem if you can't connect up the dots in your own business and then really, really get that through top to bottom. Totally. Well, I think that's a, probably a good note to close on. So, so Craig, I want to thank you so much for, for taking this time. Is there anything you want to uh, send out there to the audience here as far as where they could find you? Uh, well, at the moment, um, just looking at um, you know the world opening up, so there's a whole host of conversations going on. So I'm uh, helping a number of um, businesses so people can find me on um, LinkedIn or they can um, approach me on my email and I'm happy to get on a call or um, just open a dialogue 
And um, I think you're going to put those details out uh, alongside this, Eric. So I really appreciate you, um, you know, asking me to have a have a catch up chat, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, long may it continue. So thank you again. Excellent, great. And I'll have those links in the the uh, description of this podcast. So thanks everybody. Stay safe, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.